0: We're going to study tonight a tshuva of the Maharik, Rabbi Yosef Cologne, one of the Gedolei Hadar of 15th century in Italy. The tshuva is interesting for, as they often are, for a variety of reasons. First of all, for its historical benefit, it gives us a an interesting, albeit horrifying, window in what uh, into what life was like for European communities in the 15th century. Or most other centuries of European history, it's also it's also a very important tshuva from a halachic perspective. It is much quoted and discussed by later poskim because, aside from the specific circumstances of of the case, which horrifying as they are, are perhaps not as common as they used to be, the underlying halachic principles are profoundly relevant, are are extremely fundamental and central principles that are relevant to a Variety of contexts in Choshen Mishpat in civil law. The actual facts of the case are not entirely clear. We're dealing with some kind of blood libel. The events the events took place in the community of Regensburg, the German Bavarian community of Regensburg. Not clear exactly what happened. Myrick frequently doesn't tell us exactly what happened in the case he discusses. The we can kind of piece together what happened from the tshuva, as well as perhaps from other historical records, although we're making some assumptions, putting, putting, putting two and two together here. The, the story seems to have been related to a, to a terrible, terrible blood libel that began in Trent in Italy, a, a classic situation, Christian boy, toddler went missing, the body was eventually found in, Jewish, in, in the property of one of the Jews of the city. He was accused of having killed him and taken his blood for ritual purposes. So there was uh, the consequences were predictable and horrifying. They wound up killing a number of Jews. They, they, they burned at the stake, 15 Jews, and so on. And that was the tragedy that began in Trent in Italy. Apparently, the apparently the blood libel spread from Trent to Germany. Someone had confessed under, under torture. One of the Jews under torture in, 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 in Trent had said something about the Jews in Regensburg also uh, doing something unpleasant with the blood of Christian children. So the blood libel spread to, Trent, to, to, to Regensburg. And now there was going to be an attempt to uh, do terrible things to the Jews in Regensburg. Seventeen Jews were imprisoned. Eventually, in this case, their fate was not as grim as that of their brethren in Trent. Eventually, they were, they were released. Apparently, the emperor, Frederick III, put a great deal of pressure on the, on the community to free them. He actually fined them for doing this and made them promise not to expel the Jews. But when the Jews were in crisis in Regensburg, that was when the Marik got involved. So money can't buy happiness, but money can often make problems go away. This apparently is true. So when you read halakhic literature, very often they speak about when libels were were met, were were launched against the Jewish community, they had to be fought with money. Today we typically think of using money for things like press release for things like public relations experts and lawyers. Back then the money was used for bribes. You could pay the right people, the right people in power, to make the problem go away. Didn't always work, obviously, but. Money was apparently one of the primary tools in their toolbox for making these types of problems go away. Money was needed to uh, fend off the the horrors that awaited the Jews of Regensburg. Rabbi, we have ransom attacks now. Yes, we have ransom attacks now as well. The ransom attacks now are primarily uh, mercenary and cold-blooded in nature. They're they simply attempts to attempts to extract money. The Christians, I think, genuinely uh, and sincerely hated the Jews or actually believed they were guilty of the... Th- maybe some of them even believed they were guilty of the things they were accused of. So the attacks on Jews, at least maybe sometimes, were motivated by money, but sometimes they were motivated by by hatred, by anti-Semitism, by fear and paranoia and loathing and so on. But even in such cases, money applied judiciously could still solve the problem. You could pay... Uh, Money could override the anti-Semitism, money could motivate those who weren't so principled to take a position, some of the influential and powerful figures. Whatever it was, the the halachic literature often takes for granted that money is needed to solve such problems. So the people in Regensburg obviously were going to spend a great deal of money to, uh, to pay off the right people to make this problem go away. The question was, they wanted other German communities, other nearby Bavarian communities, to help them on the grounds that the problem doesn't end with us. If, if this stuff takes root and spreads, you're all going to have trouble. Right now it, it started in Trent. Right now it's us. Eventually it will be you as well. And therefore you should all contribute. This is a nationwide or at least region-wide problem and you all should be contributing toward the, to raise the funds necessary to make this problem go away. Other community says, we feel very bad. It's your problem. We don't feel we have to pay. That was presumably what the counter argument was, and the Mar- so against this background, the Marik wrote his chuba. The Marik was dealing with this question: Can the Jews in Regensburg force, force the, the Jews of other nearby communities to join them in raising the money to contribute toward raising this fund to uh, pay off the people who had to be paid off? So that's how the Marik begins, and now let's see his analysis. So, I don't force sorry. So that we'll see, we'll read his analysis, we'll, we'll, we'll see the halachic principles he invokes, the tamudic principles, and we'll see, we'll see what he does with it. So the, the, we should note that at that, that the, that the Marik, later in the tshuva, the, the Marik mentions that there was a, a gathering, apparently the reason he was writing this, the occasion was, there was a gathering of the Rabbanim in Nuremberg, another Bavarian city, where they were meeting to to decide what the they they, they were meeting to decide how the, who should pay for this and whether they should assess make assessments against other Jews. Merrick was writing to offer them guidance to offer his halachic opinion about uh, about about whether this could be done about whether the whether other Jews were indeed responsible for to contribute to contribute toward the defraying of the costs involved in in getting in, in getting rid of this libel. So then, the, toward the end of the tshuva, the, the Marik explains the context. He again; he doesn't really explain up front what was going on here, but toward the end of the chuva, he explains that in Nuremberg, in other cities, uh, he, he says in Nuremberg, Rabbanim were getting together Kayom, today in Nuremberg to uh, to solve this problem, and he hopes that they'll be successful. And he's encouraging everyone to, to to the bottom line. His conclusion is that the Rabbanim and Nuremberg are going to assess other Jews, uh, for their share in defraying these costs, and he is, and he is arguing that, that they are right, they are right to do so, and other Jews are obligated to contribute, to contribute funds toward this effort. How does he get there? So that's what we're going to see in the Tshuva. So he begins by saying that the Tfites HaSachenu Mekila Kedosha Regensburg, the seizure, the jailing of our brethren in Regensburg, He says, certainly this problem is contagious. This problem can easily spread. There's nothing unique about Regensburg. Today it's Regensburg. Tomorrow it will be other Jewish communities. And he says that the goal here is to save those who have been falsely accused. He uses words like Sheker and Chazav throughout the Tshuva. They have been seized for no iniquity of theirs. They have done nothing wrong and this could happen to anyone. This, this, this kind of libel, the world we live in, this can happen to anyone. <laughs> if we can solve this problem, meaning if we can use money to, to somehow fix this problem. People can say, you know, we think we're okay, <laughs> but uh, we don't think that's true, we think the problem can affect anyone. Therefore, he says, many people have asked him, to uh, to give some guidance in this matter, to explain, you know, to, to to find some resolution for how this money shall be raised. Can other Jews not in Regensburg who are not immediately currently facing the problem, can they be forced? I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. I should. I, oh, I'm sorry. I thought I was muted. No, I'm saying that Chachmei Regensburg were famous, uh, and they were Tosafists. Uh, going, it's going back more than a thousand years. And from what I had heard, um, when the Jews were finally expelled from, like, Regensburg, it was because um, they were owed so much money by some of the Gaim that, that it came to a point where instead of paying them back, they just expelled them. That may be a simple, a simplistic explanation, right. but I'm hearing that. Right, so, yeah, so I... I the, Sorry, the, I thought I was muted. I'll... Right, sure, no, thank you. Um, yeah, yeah Wikipedia also notes that Regensburg was one of the oldest, one of the oldest Jewish communities in uh, it, it, one of the oldest Jewish communities in Germany. It had a very long and storied history. They were indeed expelled. And again, the exact uh, the, the, the exact circumstances of the expulsion, how much of the motivation was, uh, as Jason was saying, the desire to avoid paying back debts they had incurred to Jewish money lenders, how much was anti-Semitism, how much was religious zeal? I, I, I certainly don't know. But this was uh, this was one fairly grim, fairly grim period in the history of the Jews of Regensburg. And this was shortly, I think, before before the before the expulsion in uh, in the early uh, early 16th century, I think. But uh, yeah, in 1519. But in uh, so, in any event, the Marik is arguing. Sorry. Yes. there... Print Jewish community and the Regensburg Jewish community, I and mean, they're like five-hour drive from each other. There, like, it, it, do we have any any reason to believe that there is inherent like like because there's commerce or or, or, or relatives that could indicate why. One can, like, you can imagine saying, "Well, let's raise money from Jews who live in the Pale of Settlement." They're also ultimately, but you're not going to go that far, right? So, 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 Trent was not actually directly involved. Trent was apparently just the story of how the blood libel originally came up. The, the, it seems that the, that the libel was currently affecting Regensburg, and they wanted to raise money, not from Italy, but they wanted to raise money from other Bavarian communities near Regensburg, unnamed communities, maybe Nuremberg, maybe other communities nearby. It, it it, the, the Italian connection was just apparently the historical background. Of the thing started in Italy and it exploded, and eventually, it, it for some reason, it, it spread to uh, to Regensburg. But that, the actual oh. the, 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 the actual debate seems to have seems to have involved just a number of uh, geographically proximate communities in Bavaria in Germany. All right, because you just had suggested that, the, that one of the people in Trent was tortured and then. Yeah, that, 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 that's what I read in one of the historical accounts of the affair that, okay. that, that, some, that somebody implicated somebody in Regensburg, but, but the, the Merrick doesn't mention Italy here. Okay. Merrick himself was from Italy, but he, he only mentioned German, German communities there. Okay, thanks. So, so the question was, can they force other people to pay? Merrick's answer is going to be yes. And the question is, how does he get there? So he says, the general principle is, any community that, can Reasonably be assumed, of Levada, he says, that Chas Vashalim, hayover Kosatarela, that the cup of wrath, or the, the cup of poison is eventually going to pass to them if they don't solve the problem, then the din is no saying, it is halachically sound, he says, that they should be no say ba'ol, that they should bear their, a share of the cost in, in fixing the problem. And since, even though right now the people in Regensburg are focused on getting the the Christians off their back, but fixing that problem, again, whatever they were going to do, bribing people, paying people off, whatever they were going to do, was going to solve the problem permanently for everyone. And that's the key halachic paradigm that we're using here. On the one hand, what they're doing in Regensburg is, this is not a per capita charge. The the government is not telling you, okay, if you want us to include... uh, if you want us to, if you, if you want us to to to, you know, to to exonerate all the communities, you're going to pay more. It didn't work like that. There was going to be a one you know, a one one payment to the whoever they were going to pay that would get them off the back off their backs in Regensburg, and that was assumed that would also solve the problem incidentally for other cities as well. So they weren't paying extra for any other city. That's why we're going to see we're going to get we're going to get into questions of zeh nen avizel ochaser. People in Regensburg would have had to pay this this the same money anyway. Regardless of whether other German communities were or were not in the picture. Nevertheless, the Marik rules, the Marik does not mention the principle of Zen of Khaser. Instead, he says, since the same the same money, the same funds that were going to save Regensburg were going to save other Jewish communities as well, he says that if they save themselves, they save everyone. If they if they fall, other Jewish communities will fall as well. Even though right now the immediate problem, the immediate legal Legal calamity is upon Regensburg, and they haven't started actually libeling Jews in other cities yet. But it's eventually going to happen. It's, it's going to get there eventually. He assumes again, you have to be there to know uh, how how to make this assessment. But we're going to take his word for it that if this problem is not solved, it will eventually, in, with great likelihood, it will eventually spread to other cities. Nidon nehem al shem him, he says, and they all have to contribute since this is a, a, a mutual need, a need that all the Bavarian communities have together, therefore, even, even, even the city that has the most pressing, most immediate need, nevertheless, the other cities can say, you do what you want and we'll freeload off you. The halacha is, on the contrary, Marik says, the, Regensburg can turn to its sister cities and say, we are, we, we are the pointy edge of the spare hair we are the ones who are going to be solving the problems for all of you. You have this problem objectively, undeniably. You have this problem as well, even if it's not quite as imminent for you. We are going to pay the money to fix it, and therefore you are going to be obligated to pay us, to join us in contributing toward this, uh, toward this solution. What is the source for this? So he brings a, a, a very important Gemara in Bhav The Gemara in Bhav is discussing local infrastructure. It's discussing two cases, two variations of a case where there is an infrastructure project that is necessary to multiple individuals. One version is that there is, a, there is an irrigation channel, an irrigation canal of some sort, and it gets, it gets blocked up. So everyone downstream of the block is unable to benefit from the, the water until they clear the block. The other case is the reverse. There is a sewer channel, a sewer ditch of some sort, which takes wastewater away, and that gets blocked up. So in this case, everyone who is upstream of the block is in trouble because their sewer is going to sit there and back up and overflow and cause trouble until they clear the, the blockage. So in both these cases, the Gemara, the Gemara says the underlying rule is the same, that all those who benefit from clearing the blockage have to, have, to, uh, have to join and pay for the clearing. So in the case of irrigation, as we said, anyone who is downstream of the block pays to clear it. People who are upstream don't have to pay. They're very happy if the canal is blocked. That means more water for them. so They, they have no interest in the block being cleared. So why should they pay for it? On the, on those who are downstream of the block have to pay for its clearing. In the sewer, it's the reverse. Everyone who is upstream of the sewer needs to have the blockage in the sewer canal cleared. Everyone who is downstream of the blockage, they have, they have no they don't need the blockage clear. On the contrary, that just means less sewage passing through their part of the pipe. They have no interest in that, so they don't have to pay. That's the rule. The rule is essentially the same rule in both cases that the, that both parties have to clear, that all the, all the parties who benefit from clearing the blockage have to contribute toward the clearing. So the Marik takes this one step further and says, let's say you're clearing a sewer pipe. So 100, 100 feet, 100 meters downstream of you, there is a block in the sewer pipe. The Merrick assumes, again, we're not dealing with modern uh, plumbing and pipes, but we're dealing with whatever they were using back then. The Merrick assumes that the problems that will be faced upstream were, uh, were, that that by uh, the blockage will not be immediate. It'll start to back up downstream, and it'll take time, and after a while, the effect of the blockage will be felt upstream. It depends, how, obviously, how big the pipe is, and how much sewage there is, and how... Uh, and how, how, and how much stuff is going in and out for every one of the people, how much sewage is going in and every one of the people who dump their sewage in there. But the Marik assumes that the facts are that the, eventually there'll be a problem upstream as well. It's posh he says it won't happen immediately, that, the, that what, what happens downstream doesn't have immediate effects on upstream. He says it takes time. Nevertheless, we force the people who are upstream to contribute, he says, other achronim challenge these arguments, but this is what the Marik assumes. So we see, we, we see, he says, really two things from the Gemara. The first rule is that when people have a joint need, they can compel each other to contribute to it. The second point is, even if the the need of one party is imminent, is is here, is, is, is here, is already present, and the need of the other party is simply anticipated, it's a it's it's a logical evolution of the current situation, but it hasn't predictable evolution, but it hasn't actually they're not actually feeling the effect yet. The Marik if this indicates that the, that the obligation to, join, to jointly contribute to solving the problem applies even in such a case. Now, as we'll see perhaps a little bit later, the basic halakha, the first halakha, that when two people share a need, they can force each other to contribute. People might find this surprising, but that actually is a halakha that has numerous sources in the Gemara. goes back to a Mishnah, the first parak in Baba Basra, the halacha is that if members of a, of a, of a city, of a community, of, of, of a street, or of an entire city, if they have certain joint infrastructure needs, they have to build a wall around the city, they have to build a guardhouse, they have to build fortifications for the city. So everyone of the city needs these, these fortifications. So the members of the city have the right to turn to each other and say, we all need this, so we all have the right to demand that we all contribute. <laughs> you can't say... I'll take my chances against the bandits coming in, the wolves coming in. No, as long as the Halakha determines, as long as Bastin determines that this is objectively necessary, then any member of the city can force any other recalcitrant member to join in funding the project. We think of this today as a function of government. Uh, Again, uh, political philosophers will talk about, uh, we'll try to untangle this, what right does one citizen have to force another, another citizen to help him? If I wanted to fund the police and you want to have a police department, how can you force me to pay for the police? That We all know intuitively that's how government works, that members of a society have the right to force other members to participate in projects that are for the general good, even if uh, people can't just say, well, I choose not to fund this particular, uh, this particular joint project. We all understand intuitively at least that that's the way human society functions. Unless you're a believer in, uh, in pure anarchy, you believe that, Basically, societies and governments have the right, government is just an extension of the will of a society, as we understand it. They have the right to force each other to contribute toward jointly necessary projects. And therefore, that's the principle established by the Gemara as well. The Gemara doesn't articulate a political philosophy about it, but the Gemara just takes for granted, the Mishnah of the Gemara takes for granted, that when multiple individuals, when a group, shares a joint need, they can force each other to contribute toward funding, to, to, to raising money to pay for that need. And the Marik says that this can the irrigation, takes that one step further and indicates that even in a case where the, one of the parties has an immediate need, the other party's need is not as imminent, but is predictable, is anticipated, even then, that's considered that the need applies, that, that again, that's, that's, that's the, the considered equivalent, that they all share the joint need, and therefore all the individuals who have this need can force each other to contribute, and they can even force the ones for whom the need is not quite imminent, they can still force them to join, they can still force them to join the, they can still force them to join. This is what the, the this is the Marik's first point. Then he says, well, maybe we have to, maybe we can distinguish between whether the problem is a sure thing, or a possibility, or a speculative concern. He says, maybe you'll tell me that hacha lo bari hazeika kuli Hai." In our case, the the, the certainty of, of, of the catastrophe befalling other cities is is you know, nobody knows. Who knows? Who who can predict? Who can uh, who, who who can who can predict what the course what the course of these blood libels is, is going to take? So so who said that maybe in such a case? Maybe in such a case there's no uh, in such a case there is no obligation to contribute. Says the Marik, no. First of all he says the facts are of Harabim, we know how this works, we understand the mindset of our uh, of our Christian brethren. Call all all they think about, all their uh, all they're focused on is finding ways to uh, descend upon us and, uh, and, uh, and cause problems for us. Hashem in his great mercy should help us, does help us from them. That's called Bari Hazegah. That's what Chazal means, that's what the Torah means and the Navi means in Mishle. It says, Blessed is he who is uh, always fearful. Again, this is not a call for paranoia. This is a call for being realistically concerned about what's likely to happen, not being uh, Pollyannish, that uh, that we know the grim world in which we live, we know what's likely to happen, we have experience, uh, bitter experience with how our Christian host behaved toward us, and therefore he says that that we have to uh, it is entirely Halakha considers these possibilities as, these grim possibilities as concrete and factual, even if they are not necessarily 100% uh, deterministically going to happen. Furthermore, he says the general rule is when Chazal talk about sakana, we always treat uh, in these contexts suffix sakana as vada. We talk about again various projects of security, various types of security measures that we make that we make everyone pay for it. Even Yiselim, even the estates of orphans, where normally there's a very high bar to charge them for anything, to assess them for anything. Normally, the halacha has a lot of protections against uh, assessing orphans for communal needs, but we, here, when it comes to security, for certain types of security measures, we charge even orphans. So we see that when Chazal dealt with possibilities of Sakana, even if it's not uh, a sure thing, Chazal treated suffix Sakana as Vada Sakana, and they treated even a possibility of danger as, uh, as something that that, we, that requires our attention, that requires we do something about it, and therefore we assess even orphans for these needs. And therefore he says that the therefore he says that the even even though it's even though it's mathematically speaking not a sure thing but when we deal with Sakana, we treat even uncertain possibilities as as concrete and, and serious problems and therefore therefore every suffix Sakana, he says we Chacham didn't follow rove in this context but but they, they, they but they they, 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 they were machmer, they treated it as vaday. Certainly, he says, kol shekein, v'kol gedola kizu, a great danger, as in the present case, vaday certainly we have to be Khoshish for it, and people can't say, oh, I'm not worried about it, things will be okay. Things will not be okay, and we have to be very concerned, things will not be okay. shena gadol anyone who is not concerned about such a grave danger to, the, to his community, but then it's, uh, that is reckless and badly misguided, he says, and therefore they have to contribute. Furthermore, he says, even if you're going to tell me that these are not considered things that are Karav Levada, but in general, we said before, the, the Mishnah, the BrySA says that security measures in general, people in the city can force each other to contribute. So we see that anyone in the city, anyone who's, who, anyone who's facing the same problem can be forced by his neighbors, by the other members of his community, to contribute to things like doors and bolts and different types of locks, and walls and uh, and all kinds of things. Kol again, again, he says, the, the grave mortal danger that we're facing in this case. The chas is a danger for Gof and, and for nefesh also, and he, he alludes briefly to what he's referring to. He says, k'damrinan nagdu. This is a reference. He doesn't even want to say what he what he's thinking here, but he he's referring to a Gemara that says that we see the power of torture that Hanani, Mishael, Vazaria were thrown into a because they refused to to worship the Buchanetzar, they were thrown into a, uh, a fiery furnace. Buchanetzar or his idols, they were thrown into a fiery furnace, and they're willing to do that. They were Mosher nefesh. They, they they were some of the classic examples of mesiras nefesh in uh, in Tanakh. That they were most nefesh to to avoid avodah to avoid even it may not have even been avodah zara, may have, it may have been simply something that was uh, that was uh, like avodah zara. But uh, says the says the Gemara, a shocking thing, the Gemara says that Chanani and Mishael of were willing to give up their lives for kvod shemayim. But had they faced torture, nagduha, had they beaten them? Then they would have pulku l'tzalma. They would have worshipped the tzalma of Nukhanezit. They couldn't have held out for if they were tortured. We shouldn't discuss what that means. Is that really true? Would such great people actually have given into torture? Maybe not. Some say some say it wasn't really Avodah It was only uh, it only looked like Avodah It was really just bowing down for the honor of the king. But in any event, the Marik says you see the power of torture. That the Gemara at face value is suggesting that even Chanaim Mishal va'Zaria might have worshipped Avodah under the stress of torture, the Marik is obviously alluding to the fact that the dangers of these blood libels, A, they're danger for the guf, because they kill people, B, they're danger for the nefesh, the Jews get baptized, Jews are forcibly baptized, Jews accept baptism, some of them at least, to, to avoid the torture and death and so on. Therefore, he says that the danger is so, uh, is so substantial and, and, so, and so grave and so mortal here, he says... Certainly we have to be, certainly we should apply all these denim of the Gemara that we force people to contribute to mutually necessary infrastructure projects. We force people to give up even the shirt off their backs to pay for these needs. Even if they have to sell the hair of their head, we would force them to do that. And uh, therefore, as Marik says, based on these various Gemaras, they take for granted that even in less dramatic cases, people, neighbors, and members of the same community have the right to force each other to contribute to mutually necessary security measures. So that applies here as well. The people in Regensburg have the right to force other Jews and other Jewish communities to contribute toward these definitely, certainly necessary and prudent security measures to fend off this, uh, this terrible threat. Since it's for security, do uh, the Talmud have to contribute? Good question. So there, there, is a, there is a famous halacha that it says that when it comes to security measures, we say that the, the, the same Gemara in Baba Basra that talks about who we assess for what types of needs, so the, the Gemara does say that Kalmanacham don't have to pay for security because the Torah protects them. This is something that has seen uh, a fair amount of discussion, particularly in the 20th century, both with regard to taxes as well as with regard to military service, whether Kalmanacham whether have to serve in the army. Ravavadi Yosef seems to have Held at least with regard to taxes, that taxes that are that are that are earmarked for security cannot be assessed on. But the yeah. So the question is, if if, if these funds were being were being assessed as essentially as a security measure to uh, preserve the life and persons of the of the Jewish community, could the Chachamim have 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 uh, argued they should be exempt on the grounds that and the Tirusa? Good question. He does not discuss it here. Um, there, there are some qualifications, some internet, some, some, uh, some complications with regard to that halacha. I, I, I don't remember all the details offhand, so I'm not sure. It is an interesting question. It's not one I, that, I, that I see raised in the current discussion, so, but it's an interesting question. So the Marik concludes, he says, I'm not the one who's actually ruling here. I'm not the one who's actually making the decision. It, this is going to be made by the Chachamim, Rabbis who are gathering, Hayom, who are gathering today in Nuremberg, k'de to solve this problem. Again, we read this part earlier. He says, He may it be Hashem's will that uh, Hashem make them successful, and, and they should succeed in uh, thwarting this, uh, in averting this doom. And everyone should listen to what they say. Everyone should listen to their guidance who should pay, and how much they should pay, again, I guess the question is, who's, who's in more danger, who's in less danger, how much people should pay, The questions like this, there's always a question, how much, are, how much is proportionate to wealth, and how much is proportional to, uh, to how much is per capita, al mi la or so, but in any event, whatever the decisions of the Chachmei Noor, and Bergar, al kalesh everyone must obey their dictates. And he says, "In normally, as we know from traditional halachic literature, the, the ultimate power of the Jewish community was the cherem, was the ban, that they would enforce decisions that they took by putting people under the ban if they failed to listen. We also know that the Christians often recognized the, the unparalleled power of the ban. The Christians, therefore, often denied the denied the Jewish communities the right to impose the ban. Even though they gave them a great deal of autonomy and they often held them responsible for governing themselves, at the same time, they often took away the, they often took away the power of the ban. That's why you'll see many Sfarim published in the 19th century often. You'll see many Sfarim anytime they mention the word Cheyrim, you'll see a little footnote uh, saying Cheyrim, when the government allowed it, not of course today, when the government bans the Cheyrim, these halachas are obsolete today, are moot. Because the governments were very, very upset about the Cherem sometimes, and they they, they often uh, were quite strict about denying the Jews the right to apply the Cherem. So the Marik mentions this, he says, I I know that in Nuremberg, and many other cities in Germany, it sounds like in Italy he could speak freely about the Cherem, but it sounds like in Germany there was a problem with the Cherem, that the local Christian governments didn't allow them to do the Cherem. They they couldn't write which means Cherem, because of fear of the government, or other reasons he says. Therefore, they can't, uh, they can't. say explicitly that they're imposing a chayyim. I can do that. I have, the, I have the. political ability to do that, legal ability to do that. Dafki Their authority should. Their authority should be respected on its own right. But nevertheless, I am going to back them up by imposing a chayyim. Hinani gozer now, the words, Bekoach Nidri, V'Shamta, were actually omitted from later printed editions of the Marik, for the same reason, because they weren't allowed to even talk about Cherem in some, in some communities. But in some editions, we have these words. the earlier editions, we have these words, B'koach, Nidri, V'Shamta, different forms of Cherem. I, therefore, under the penalty of the ban, which was the, pretty much the most dire thing they could do, the Rabbanim, against all residents of Ashkenaz, man and woman, family, individual, community, no one should flout the authority of the Rabbanim in Nuremberg, whatever they assess on other communities, on individuals, to pay or to, to, to help support, the, the defray these costs, the cost of a libel in Regensburg. The libel, he insists, of course, is Sheker and Chazov of the Tarmus. It is a false libelous allegation. Blood libel, kishmo and no one should uh, refuse, no one should fail to cooperate, whatever they assess in Nuremberg, people should do, anyone who does not listen to them, or anyone who shall deliberately refuse to abide by the dictates of the Nuremberg rabbis, then uh, another expression for cherem, shall be excommunicated, etc., etc., he shall be cursed, again, cursing in halacha has a formal implication of, of nidui again, of cheirem, anyone who listens uh, shall, uh, shall uh, he blesses him that he shall merit bracha. This is the ruling of the marik, that basically he takes the gemaras that imply that people have the right to force each other to contribute to a joint need, and he extends this in the direction to say that even if the problem currently is only affecting one community, but if we can reasonably anticipate that it will eventually spread to other communities, and certainly if it's a question of danger, where the prudent and halakhically responsible thing is to be concerned about it, they can force other communities to join them as well, even though in the, in, in, even though in the immediate term, the current situation only affects themselves. The Ramah and Shulchan Aruch Paskins like this Marik, set, mar, the Ramah says very briefly, if an alila, if a libel, is currently affecting one community, one city, the halacha is all cities, that there's reason to believe that the libel will eventually affect them, they can all be forced to contribute toward the amelioration of the problem. This this is the ruling of the Marik, this is the ruling of the Ramah, generally accepted by the Akronim. There are, however, some Akronim who are not satisfied with this Marik, the Chacham Tzvi and others, and one of the problems they raise is that the, the, they, they raise a group of problems which revolve largely around the same idea. We mentioned earlier, there is there in general a principle in halacha of zenen, of a If I have a problem and I, solve, and I pay money to solve my problem and someone else incidentally benefits from my expenditure, I cannot charge him. I didn't pay for him. I had, the, the cost was fixed regardless of whether he's in the picture or not. I did it for me because I have a problem. I can't turn around and then say, well, you also benefit from it. You also benefit from it. It doesn't work like that. You benefited. There was no additional cost for helping anybody else. And therefore, you're not able to charge other people. And Ramah himself elsewhere brings similar rulings, including in very similar contexts involving ransoms and libels. Ramah does invoke this principle. He says, "If there was no adi- if, if one community or one individual did not incur any additional costs on behalf of the other communities that they benefited, they can't charge them, because z'an dan zelo So how do we square that with this Marik? So Marik is telling us that even if currently the problem affects you, but if we can anticipate the problem may affect others as well, and it's prudent for them to be concerned about it, you can charge them. In other contexts, the rule is z'an dan zelo that the expense was yours, you solved your problem and incidentally benefited others, you have no right to charge them. So when do we say one? When do we say the other? This is an extremely complicated sugya. There are numerous chuvos that uh, that, that, that deal with these, these contradictions and make all kinds of distinctions. We're not gonna get too much we're not, we're not gonna we're not gonna delve too much more deeply into the intricacies of their distinctions. Some say that there's a difference between danger at our community level and dealing with individuals, some have other distinctions. The just throws up his hands and says it's a contradiction, and this Marik is uh, is debatable, and we don't Paskin like it. He says, even though the Rabbah Paskin like it. One thing, one one Achron I do want to discuss briefly is the is the is the position of the Nesivus HaMishpah. The Nesivus does work very much with this Marik. America is based on the Gemaras. America is based on various Gemaras that say that when people share a mutual need, they all need to clear the blockage in a river, upstream or downstream. They all need to build walls around the city. There are clear Gemaras that that articulate this rule that they can all force each other to join. And again, we would think of this as a function of government. The Gemara doesn't really cast it as government. The Gemara just introduces it as a kind of self-evident, really, partnership. Five people live on a river they don't share any kind of governmental authority over the river necessarily, but if they all have a joint need, they can all force each other to contribute. And we don't say we don't say you can't force me, what do you have to do with me? We're not partners I and mean, we never enter into any kind of agreement for the maintenance of the river. It doesn't work like that. If Baston sees that there is a joint need, that objectively they all need this, Baston can force all of them to contribute. So the Nasivus elevates this, articulates this and generalizes this into a general doctrine even people who have no explicit agreement of partners, anytime there's something that they clearly both need, then they can force each other to contribute. It's, it's a kind of automatic partnership. Akronim, legal thinkers, try to articulate what is the volumdus the of this, what is the rationale for this, but the Gemara just takes it for granted. The Mishnah and the Gemara just expresses it as uh, a logical and, and uh, ruling that, that doesn't require any, any, part, any further explanation that if there are people who share a mutual need, they can all force each other to jointly contribute. Again, Marik extends it even further, even if the immediate need is for, is for one of them and the other person is not even in the picture yet, but the, in some cases, even, even he can be forced to contribute if the need is, if we can anticipate it, then it's clearly something that a responsible person would and should be concerned about. But the Nesivist just develops this general idea. The halacha has this notion of artificial partnership, and he goes on and he, he brings a number of different examples of it, Then he points out that yes, there are some cases in which we say zeh nenav zelo chaser. There are cases in which we say, "Well, you paid the money. I don't feel like joining you. I'm I'm benefiting from it. I'm not denying that I benefit from it. Why should I pay zeh nenav zelo chaser? You did it, and I benefited. So why should I pay you anything?" So the Nesiva says Nesiva tries to explain when we say that rule. So he says that's only the only time we say that. He says is when something that's not strictly necessary. It's a luxury, it's, ni- it's a nice to have, but it's not necessary. The example he brings is when there are two neighbors, one of them puts up a fence around his property, and the fence also benefits the other, the other, the other property owner, because now the, the, the varmints are not getting in, the deer, or the, whatever they are, the raccoons, are not getting into his neighbor's property either, because, the, because the, the nice expensive fence he built is keeping out all the pests from his neighbor's property as well. So he turns to his neighbor and says, can you please now, can I charge you to defray the cost we're not even talking about a fence between the two neighbors. We're talking about a fence he built around the far side of his property, let's say. He says, look, I have a forest next to my property. The deer were coming in, and from my property, they were going to your property. Now that I fenced my property, you're safe from the deer. Please pay me. So we say no. We say, Zanen of Azelo that you didn't pay extra because of him. The fact that he incidentally benefits, we say, you have no right to charge him. He says in the the only reason we say you can't charge him in that case is because he doesn't really need it. He could say it's a nice-to-have, yes, but I could have found other solutions. I could have found cheaper solutions. I, I, I didn't need a fence. I wouldn't have built a fence. If it were up to me, I would never have funded the construction of a fence. If that's a credible claim, if Baston thinks that that's what a reasonable person might have done, then even though he doesn't deny that he benefits from it, now the fence is here. I can't deny. It's very convenient. But you can't force me to pay because I, I never would have wanted to, to, to fund such a project. But projects which are not debatable... When there's a blood libel going around, you don't just say hope for the best. That's not a plan. When there are, when the city needs a fence or or bolts and locks and so on, that's not debatable. That's something that Chazal felt was necessary. The Mishnah feels is necessary. In such cases, any willing individual can force the unwilling individuals to to join him. And the Marik's extension of that is that that applies even in a case where the even in a case where the the need is primarily currently on one party, but if it's expected that it will eventually, be, the need will eventually be felt by the other parties, and even now, one party can force all the other ones to contribute to the cost that will eventually be for all of their benefit. We'll just close with reading one, one small piece from one last tshuva from the pre Tvua. He says that there's a difference between, between the case where he brings the, one of the other discussions of the Ramah of this general sugya, where the Rama says that there's a difference between when do we say, or when do we say it's, it's a partnership and you have the right to force everyone to join? So he says, partnership applies when the person making the expenditure is aware of and is taking into account the needs of the other individuals involved, and he's making the expenditure deliberately, consciously, assuming and hoping and, and, and insisting that they join him. In the case where you did it just for yourself, and then you decide, look, I, I, I might as well try to recoup some of the cost, then we say, Zen Anavazello v'zelo chaser. Accordingly, he explains, the Marik was talking about a case where the people in Regensburg, that, that, that's clear from the marik they wanted the other cities to join them. There was a whole meeting about it, a conclave in, in Nuremberg, to decide who would pay how much. So up front, they clearly wanted the other cities to, to join. That's called, al-Dash dashnehem. That's called, they made the expenditure... On behalf of everyone. In such a case, that's where we paskin, there's no zen enem zelo chaser. If we both have a need, as the explained, if we both have a need, certainly, and I, and I made the expenditure on behalf of all of us, knowing I might have the most pressing need, but I know that we all have the need, and I made the expenditure on behalf of all of us, then I have the right to demand that you join in my expenditure. Even though you say no, even though you say you don't want to pay, you want to take your chances, it doesn't work like that. Again, if Baston fails, if I do it on behalf of you and based in feels that, uh, that it's a reasonable expenditure, a necessary expenditure, even if you say we'll take our chances, it doesn't work. That's where Halakha has this notion of automatic involuntary partnership, that I have the right to make an expenditure and demand that you cover it. In a case where I didn't do it on behalf of you, I did it for myself, I wasn't thinking about you, my, I was thinking solely about myself, but now that I, now that I did it, now that I did it, I uh, I, I, I want to turn around and recoup some of the costs from you. Then we say Zanen of Zelochaser, you did it, and, and you did it on behalf of yourself. The benefit to him was incidental. That wasn't your that wasn't your plan, and therefore you cannot charge. So obviously, based on this, it, it's based on really it goes back to the Rama. Based on this, anytime someone has a plan to make an expenditure that will benefit multiple people, if he's a Pikach, if, if he wants to, if he wants to make sure that other people will will have to help defray the costs. He should, make, he should make sure to do his research and be aware of those who need the same problem. He should make it clear that he's doing the, the project on behalf of all of them. And then, according to many PostKIM, even if the need is not immediate, but it will eventually be necessary for them, he'll be able to charge all of them. He'll be able to collect some of the costs from all of them. This comes up sometimes. You build, a, you build a new development or a bunch of houses that need to have utility lines run. So if they all agree to run the lines and share the costs, fine. So they do that. What if you know, one, some, people are mo- some people have already moved in and they want their electricity and you know, other people haven't moved in yet, they're not in a rush. The people, the people who have moved in decide to pay to have the line run out when it's their responsibility. Can they then turn around and demand the other people join them and sh- at least in the, the section of the line that benefited all of them? The answer is yes. The answer is that at least assuming that they did it on behalf of the entire development, assuming they were aware of the other, the other people who, who also needed the lines and did it on behalf of all of them, assuming that they could recoup the cost later, a very strong case could be made that they would have the right to demand that the other, that the other people join, even if the other people haven't moved in yet and don't need the electricity lines yet. Yeah? I think we would all agree that in 21st century United States, it's virtually unthinkable to have a house without utility lines. There are people who like to live off the grid, either for, uh, either for uh, lifestyle reasons or for privacy reasons, who you will know, build their own generators and solar panels and whatnot, or just want to live a uh, pre-modern existence. But in, gen- in general, a strong case can be made that, realistically, almost any normal person who builds a house in a, in a, in a normal residential area does want uh, standard utility lines in his apartment, and that in his house, and therefore a very good case can be made that uh, the person who extended unilaterally the lines would have the right, on behalf of everyone, would have the right to charge them. Of course, you get into questions about the details. If you extend internet lines, and uh, some people have Hashgothic reasons they don't want internet in their house, so then, then th- that, that, that would be a legitimate position, presumably, and you certainly couldn't charge them if they, if they honestly don't want it. If you run gas and they want electricity, again, we can debate some of these questions about what's considered... Absolutely necessary, and when do we say the rule of the nasivus? I don't need it. Uh, you know, I, I don't want it. Uh, now that you have it, I mean, maybe I'll use it, but I wouldn't necessarily have run it. I would have. I would have done something else. So that we can debate. But the basic principle is that if we all need something, and Basin recognizes that uh, that we all need it, then the person who made the expenditure, assuming he did it al nehem, even if the other ones object, in some cases can force the other ones to contribute. And according to the Marik, that applies even if the need is currently only felt by you and is currently not yet being felt by the other people. Still, if, the, if, if, if it's foreseeable, if it's anticipated, they will need it. Like in my example, the development, they haven't moved in yet, but they will move in. And when they move in, they're going to need their electricity. The fact that they're not here for another three months doesn't necessarily matter. You still have the right to force them to, to join in your expenditure, because they will have the problem, they will have the need, even if they don't have the need just yet.